for a word of prayer as we start the service. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come before you today uh, as broken sinners redeemed by your blood, every one of us, Lord, uh, because of the things that you've done for us by coming to earth, living a perfect life, becoming a perfect sacrifice, and dying our death that we deserve, bearing the wrath of God, uh, and then rising from the grave, conquering death, you have shown us that by grace, through faith, we can have your salvation for all the things that you've done and that we have not. We thank you that we can gather together as a church body this morning and that we can worship you together. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, turn your Bibles to Psalm 99, verse 1 through 5. Good morning, everybody. How y'all doing? I'm going to put this over here real quick. I am uh, sorry about that. I don't know what's going on there, but uh, I am so happy to be here with you this morning and to be preaching from God's word. Um, like Brandon mentioned earlier, we're going to be continuing the series in Mark. I'm going to be in Mark chapter 14, verses 10 through 21. Uh, and before we get started, I'm just going to be honest. Uh, this passage today is a little bit of a doozy. It's, uh, so it's kind of heavy, just the material that we're talking about. And I found myself throughout the week just really struggling with how to structure um, uh, the passage. And, and just all week long, I felt just the struggle and the toil of trying to study and to prepare. And there was busyness throughout the week. Um, and I'm just like sitting here banging my head against the text and just not knowing what we need to, to get from it. Um, and I was praying that the Lord would help me to, to understand not only what the text says, but what it should mean for us as a church and what do we do with this. Um, and I got pretty frustrated throughout the week. Um, I was asking God, God, what, what, why can't I figure this out? Am I supposed to be up here preaching this? Or, uh, am I capable of faithfully preaching your word the way that you call us to? Um, I even asked, does Brandon give me the passages he doesn't want to preach uh, when it's hard? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, but in all seriousness, I was, actually, uh, I was actually pretty thankful that the Lord allowed me to struggle. Um, because through the process, what he did is he convicted me. Uh, he convicted me and showed me that more regularly, even in my daily reading, in my quiet times, uh, the work of sitting down and getting on your knees and in a posture of dependence, just crying out to God to speak and to illuminate his word that he's given us, to, to reveal to us deep truths about himself. Like, I was just very convicted that I don't do that enough often. I will do my quiet times, and sometimes I'm checking off the box. Um, and then you get to a moment where you're like, I don't know what to do with this. And then we feel the dependence, and then we go to him. Um, and so actually in this moment, I know we just prayed a few times, but I'm actually going to ask us to pray once more um, to, to help us just understand God's word um, and to just guide us as we walk through what we as a church can take from what God's word says to us. So if you will bow your heads with me, I'm going to pray once more before we get into the text. 
Father God, we come to you today with desperate hearts. Lord, we know that you are a good, gracious God. Lord, you are creator. And yet even in our sinfulness and our disobedience of you, you have still chosen to speak to us, God. Lord, help us as a church to know how precious your word is. Lord, help us to know that in every situation, in every moment, even now as we go to your word and we listen to your preached word, God, we need you. We need your spirit, Lord, to illuminate the truth that is in your word, God. And so I just pray, God, I have nothing of value to say myself. God, you know that and everyone in this room knows that. I know that, Lord. And so I pray right now, desperately, that you would come to us and speak, God. Set me aside. Set all of our presuppositions and our distractions, Lord. We ask that you would set those aside and allow us to just dwell in this moment while we open up your word, God, and let it minister to our hearts. God, we love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 14, verses 10 through 21 says this. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad, and they promised to give him money. And Judas sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow that man, and wherever he enters, say to the master of that house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples sent out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who's dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Father, speak to us now, we ask of you in your name. Amen. So we've been working our way through the book of Mark, and as we are getting to the last few chapters of Mark, we have noticed that things are really starting to slow down. Uh, When we begin this study last year, the first two chapters of Mark, I mean, we're just flying through periods of time. We're going from one big event to another big event. You see Jesus healing this person. You see Jesus speaking to the crowds. You see this big confrontation or this big moment. And now, as as we slowly inch our way closer to the cross, when we're getting closer to the arrest of Jesus and eventually his crucifixion, the author of the Gospel of Mark intentionally begins to slow things down and draws out the period of what we're actually looking at. We start to get a moment-by-moment presentation of all the things and all the moments that are unfolding as we get closer to the cross. 
Last week, we saw in verses 3 through 9 that Brandon preached from that the chief priests and the scribes, the religious authorities, have begun to plot to kill Jesus. But they're doing it secretly. They're doing it cautiously. They're doing it behind the shadows. They don't want to get all the people riled up that love Jesus. They don't want to get them uh, all riled up and, and oppose what they're trying to do. So they're trying to do it in secret. And so we, we, we get to our passage today in a moment where they're seeking and they're planning and they're plotting and they're waiting for the right moment to get after Jesus. And then they get a pleasant surprise. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, they were glad, and they promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. We have Judas, one of twelve men who had walked with Jesus for years. One of twelve men who had sat under his teaching, who had watched Jesus perform miracles, who had seen Jesus serve the poor, had seen Jesus show kindness to all sorts of people. Judas, a close friend, seeking an opportunity to betray Jesus. So as we look at these verses, verses 10 and 11, and really as we work our way through the whole rest of this passage, what I want us to do, because there's a lot of little details here and we can kind of get lost in the weeds, but what I want to do is just take us out a little bit and give a big overview of what really is going on, a big picture idea of what's taking place in these moments. And primarily, what I want us to see is pretty simple. I want us to see the distinction between man and God. The distinction between man's intentions and God's plans. And the difference between man's wicked heart and the grace of God's love. So the first truth that I want us to look at in this passage is this. Truth number one, Judas's betrayal is a display of man's heart. Judas's betrayal is a display of man's heart. I want us to recognize just how ugly of a moment this is. You have two parties involved here, and they're doing everything in secret. On one side, you have the chief priests, you have the religious authorities who openly oppose Jesus, they hate Jesus, they cannot stand what he's doing, what he's teaching, how the people are responding to them because they love the power that they have and everything he's doing is undermining it and they can't stand it. So it's very clear, you got an enemy, right? But on the other side, you have someone that is very close to Jesus, someone who is following him, someone that has been with him, that knows what he's doing, knows what he's saying, knows where he's going, and has walked with him faithfully, just like all the other disciples. And these two parties are colluding together to get an innocent man murdered. And so we have to look at this and ask the question, what is the motivation behind this? What would lead someone to do something like this? Well, for Judas, it's pretty simple. It's greed. It's money. He, you see, Ju- Judas actually had a pretty deep love for money that kind of went under the radar. He was the treasurer of the group, so he managed all the money that Jesus and the disciples had amongst them. And the significant thing that I want us to understand about Judas, because it's very easy to, I mean, Judas now, in hindsight, you hear that name and you immediately think, oh, traitor, oh, uh, you know, murderer, all these things. But in that moment, 
At this time, from all outward displays, Judas seemed just as faithful as all the other disciples. Judas was not some black sheep of the group. When Jesus ends up telling the disciples that one of them is going to betray him, it's not like everyone just immediately is like, okay, yeah, we know it's Judas. No. Judas had the outward appearance of being a faithful follower of Jesus. But the problem was what was in Judas's heart. He had this overwhelming hunger for riches. And in fact, we see in other parts of scripture that he actually secretly misused his position as a treasurer um, to, to profit himself. John 12, verse 6 tells us that Judas used to help himself to what was put in the disciples' money bag. So he was secretly stealing when they were going around and ministering to people. We see in last week's passage from Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9, that Brandon preached on, um, that as the woman goes and, and she is humbly going before Jesus and she pours out this very, very expensive ointment onto Jesus, uh, the disciples complain about it and they're saying, what are you doing? We could have sold this. We could have used this money to give to the poor. And the loudest one in the room is Judas. And he's saying, well, we could have used this. We could have went and served. We could have done what you wanted to do. And then the reality is that Judas didn't care very much about the poor. What he cared about was himself. He cared about filling his own pockets from the money that was coming in. And actually, the parallel account of our passage today in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 26, verse 14 through 16, actually gives us an additional detail about the interaction between Judas and the priest. It says this, verse 14, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. Now, there could have been other motivations for, Jesus, uh, for Judas. Uh, he could have been bitter and upset because he expected Jesus to be a different kind of Messiah. He could have been envious of Jesus. Uh, he could have been just overall dissatisfied with following Jesus. There, there could have been a, a range of motivations for what Judas did. But what we do see very clearly in Scripture is that he was willing to give Jesus up for a few coins. And what are the chief priests doing in this moment? Verse 11, when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give Judas money. Other versions of this passage say that the chief priests were delighted when Judas approached them about handing Jesus over to them. When I first read this, this just made me sick. These priests, the chief priests, they were supposed to be godly people. They were supposed to be people who love and worship and serve and pray and lead the people in righteousness. Instead, they are secretly scheming murder. And what I want us to see as a big picture, big takeaway from this whole passage, the first truth, is that you're seeing the heart of man bubbling up to the surface. You are seeing what lies at the heart of man, and it is coming out in the most unfortunate of circumstances. Because you see all throughout the book of Mark, as we've been going through the gospel of Mark, we have seen this back-and-forth dilemma between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And we have watched over and over again as Jesus has stepped into the scene and he has confronted people and he has totally flipped man's kingdom upside 
down because he says, I do not care how godly you pretend to be. I do not care how rich you are. I don't care what kind of power you think you have. True worshipers of me will love me with their whole heart and they will show it with their lives. And what's in the heart will come out to light. Brandon talked about last week what Jesus values most. And we see in the passage right before this, the woman showing how much she valued Jesus by dumping out this very expensive perfume on him just in worship of him. And Jesus says, this, this is what I want. This is the beautiful thing. This is true worship. And yet a few verses later, we're seeing something totally opposite. We're seeing how much the priests valued their authority and their power and their status. We're seeing how much Judas values his money and just enriching himself, so much so that they're willing to be driven to murder. But when we zoom out of this specific instance, we really see that at the heart of all of this, this is us. No, we weren't the ones specifically there betraying Jesus and handing him over to the chief priest for murder. But we sell Jesus out all the time for all kinds of things. We have all contributed to the human problem of worshiping ourselves over worshiping God. We have all contributed to the problem of valuing things of this world over picking up our crosses daily and following Jesus in obedience. We're all guilty. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah 64.6, all of us have become like one who's unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. I point this out because I think there is a subtle tendency in all of us, even as we read scripture, to look at Judas or the priest with this kind of like special disgust for what they did. And, and, and admittedly, I mean, what they did was awful. It was evil, and it came at a very, very important time. But I'm worried that we're too quick to forget how capable of evil you and I are because of what we value in our hearts. I actually have a, a funny story. Um, a college teammate of mine who was actually one of my roommates um, he is not a follower of Jesus, uh, made that very known throughout college, and even to this day does not have a desire to, to follow, and he makes fun of Christians, and what he did love to do was to pick on me for trying to obey Jesus, even through all my failures, and, um, and so we would go back and forth, we would kind of jest with one another, and he just wanted to poke and prod all the times at the weird things he thought Christians uh, did. And there was this one moment where he and myself and a couple other guys were supposed to go to some event. And uh, long story short, something happened like close to when it was starting and I got caught up doing something else and I couldn't go and all the guys went and they were sitting there waiting on me and they were like, oh, come on. So they just gave me a hard time and were ragging on me. And my friend thought it'd be funny uh, to give me a call and just say, you Judas. Don't know what motivated him to do that, but he thought it would be funny to say, oh, you're a traitor, you left us out to dry, you're just like Judas. And it became an ongoing joke from that moment 
that any time I did something to displease him or we disagreed about something, he would just throw that out there and joke and would call me Judas, the one who um, gave up our Lord. Um, and it's, and it's, it's funny, it's kind of this little thing, it became this ongoing joke, um, but there was something kind of behind why he called me that and what his interpretation of who Judas was to him. Because he thought, well, it's obvious. Judas did the really bad sin. Judas was the one that he, he gave up Jesus. I mean, that should be the, the worst thing you could possibly be. But in reality, what he was missing was the fact that I am just as guilty of a sinner as Judas was. And left to my own devices, I am I'm just in trouble in the state of my sin as Judas or any other sinner has ever been because we have sinned against a holy God. And each one of us in this room knows what that's like because each one of us has valued comfort or status or our success or money or sex or power or whatever it is. We have valued these things over, time, over Jesus time and time again. And in the process, we have betrayed Jesus too. It's ironic that the disciples freak out a little bit later in verse 19 when Jesus first tells them that one of them is going to betray him. Because he's, they're, they're freaking out. They're like, is it me? Is it me, Jesus? Am I the one? Am I going to betray you? Am I going to do it? And the answer, of course, in that moment is, well, no, not every single one of them was handing him over to the priest. But the answer is also yes. Because it was because of their betrayal and their sin and their disregard for truly worshiping God perfectly was the reason why Jesus was going to the cross in the first place. Jesus went to the cross for them. Jesus went to the cross for you. Jesus went to the cross for me, for our sinful betrayal. And so what I want us to see here, first truth, again, Judas' betrayal is a display of man's heart. Moving on, verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to, prepare for you to eat the Passover? And when he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of that house, the teacher says, where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples sent out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared for the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. And they begin to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who's dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So this is a bigger chunk of scripture that we're going to kind of loop into one thing. But I want us to, again, look at the big picture here of what's going on and see how Jesus is responding to the ongoing situation. And so that brings us to our second truth, which is this. Jesus' response is a display of God's love. Jesus' response is a display of God's love. The rest of the passage shows us how Jesus responds to knowing about the murder plot. And I want us to observe three aspects of God's love that you see in 
Jesus' response. So I don't want to get you guys confused, but I have the two main truths, and then under this second truth, there's going to be three aspects of God's love that we see in the way Jesus responds in this moment. So the first one is this. Jesus' response is the display of God's providential love. Jesus' response is the display of God's providential love. Providential means involving divine foresight or intervention. Basically, God has his hand all up in it. And you see this. You see this in the Gospel of Mark. You see this throughout Scripture. And you see it right here in this moment. Nothing with Jesus is ever accidental. And nothing with Jesus is ever unplanned. Jesus came for a reason. He came down from heaven, he took on flesh, and he walked the earth with one aim, and it was all leading to the cross to save his people. That's what he's here for. And, and, and so when I was going through the passage, and I, when I first read this section, verses 12 through 16, I, I wondered why the author chose to include these details. Because when you first read it, and especially when you're talking about the betrayal and the supper's coming, you, you see it all, it, it's, it's on the horizon. Everything, the big moments are all on their way. And then you get to this point, and it feels like the location of the Passover and how they got to it, when I first read it, it just seemed kind of insignificant. And I was wondering why these details are included. You have the guy with the jar of water, and they have to follow him, and they have the house, and the owner there is going to know about the upper room, and all these details leading them to that moment, and they just didn't seem super significant. But they're there for a reason. And so as I dug and I was reading, um, what I think the author of Mark's gospel is trying to do here, they're trying to show Jesus' complete control over the entire situation, down to the last detail. You see, the Passover was a huge event for the Jewish people. It was this big, giant celebration uh, where the, the people of Israel remember God bringing the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And by law, the Passover meal had to be celebrated in Jerusalem's city limits. And so every year there was this like mass pilgrimage of people who were all huddling into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover meal. And so just to give you kind of a figure, there would have been hundreds of thousands of people. I was reading somewhere, I don't know if this is true, but some people estimated it could have been up to like maybe 2 million people all trying to get into this place. So everything's booked, all the places there to stay are, are packed to the brim and everyone's celebrating that night. And the disciples don't know where they're going have the Passover meal. They don't have a place. And so then Jesus gives them these kind of vague details. Go find this guy with the water jug, and he's going to lead you to this house, and you ask him about this. And, and just think about, like, the Super Bowl being in New Orleans and trying to find a hotel room. Like, you're just going to tell me to go and find someone in the city that has this jar of water. Um, and so the, the details that Jesus gives them seem a little improbable for the disciples, unless Jesus sovereignly knows exactly when things are going to take place and how they're going to take place. And we actually see that take place because verse 16 says this, and the disciples set out and they went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. He didn't tell them, go down St. Rose Avenue and find Mr. Eddie. Like, this was a big city full of a bunch of people, and it all details down to the last little bit works out 
and they're there, and the upper room is being prepared for the Passover. Jesus knows what's about to happen. Jesus knows what's going to happen during the Passover. He knows what's going to happen right after the Passover. And yet you see Jesus plowing forward, undeterred, even orchestrating all the little ornate details to make it happen. And it's because it's all part of his plan. He is not taken aback by this sudden reality that maybe some people are trying to stir up and kill him. He's not confused or, or blindsided by Judas's betrayal. All of this is part of his plan. He has ordained it, and it's leading him straight to the cross, which is what he came here to do. A cross that he was going to, to offer himself up freely for my sin and for your sin. That is providential love. Jesus' response is a display of God's providential love. The second aspect of God's love you see in Jesus' response is this. Jesus' response is a display of God's patient love. Verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who's eating with me. And the disciples begin to be sorrowful. And they say to him one after another, Is it I? Is it I? And he says to them, it's one of the twelve, one who's dipping bread into the dish with me. And I want you guys to imagine yourself as Jesus in this moment. You know that you're about to be delivered up by a man that you've invested so much of your life into, you've invested your time into. This is a man that you've loved and you've cared for. You've done life with him for years. And he's about to sell you out for a couple of coins. And what do you do in that moment? Jesus shares a meal with him. The parallel passage of this night happens in the Gospel of John. And in that Gospel, John gives us a few more details about what actually takes place at the dinner. John chapter 13, verses 22 through 24 says this. Right after Jesus tells them that one of them is going to betray him. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom Jesus spoke about. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, John's talking about himself. John, John was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. And so, to give you kind of a visual, uh, typically at a meal like this, uh, they sat down, it was a table that was pretty low to the ground, and they sat on cushions, um, and normally they would, uh, they would sit all around the, the U-shaped table, and the host of the meal would sit in the center of the U, and he would have his closest friends on the side of him, and everyone would kind of gather around that way. And uh, from what I was reading, they would recline, you would like recline on your left elbow, and you would lean, and you would eat with your right hand. Um, and so what that meant is you would actually have your head, you would kind of be laying up on the chest of the person to your left. Well, that's just how they did it back then, I don't know. But, and, and so at a feast, normally when you think of a seat of honor or a place of honor, you think of it being at the right-hand side of somebody. But because of the way they sat at feast, the place of honor was actually to the left of the host. 
And so if we start taking the details from Mark's gospel and John's gospel and we start playing detective, we can kind of start to locate some of the disciples or have a general idea of where they were at. And so the disciple leaning on Jesus' chest was John. So he's to the right of Jesus. And you see him kind of talking directly with Jesus. And then you see later on in the same passage out of John that Peter is asking John the details. Like, what's Jesus saying? What is he talking about? Ask him this. So, so we, we know that, that Peter is not directly next to Jesus because he's having to communicate through John, of, you know, asking Jesus to, to kind of clarify some things. So we see John chapter 13, verses 25 through 6. So that disciple, John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it you're talking about? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I dip it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So where was Judas at the table? For Jesus to give a piece of the bread to Judas, it would mean that Judas was on the other side of Jesus. So he was not only next to Jesus, but he was actually in the place of honor at this dinner. And so I want us to let that soak in and to think about Jesus' patient love towards Judas. He knows that Judas has planned to betray him. He knows that he's already went to the chief priest, and he knows what all of this is leading up to. Jesus knows it all. And yet, he still eats a meal with him. He doesn't just, like, expose Judas' sin. to. I mean, he could have went there to the table and just had a field day and just lit Judas up in front of all the disciples and say, I know this, I know this, I know what you're doing here, you're planning this. He doesn't do that. He keeps his sin a secret and waits the proper time. He even offers Judas a token of friendship. To share a meal with somebody was, and especially in Jewish times, was an expression of unity. You were, you were getting your body nourished from the same food, and he physically offers the bread to Judas. He's given him every opportunity to lay back and to turn from his evil plans. He even places them in the place of honor. This is exactly what Jesus does with us. When we scheme and when we plan evil things, when we sin in our pride and in our selfishness, when we forget about God for a little while and do our own thing, there Jesus is, beckoning us back to himself, patiently loving us, giving us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, showing us grace that is so undeserved, just like he did with Judas. Jesus' response to Judas in this moment is a display of God's incredibly patient love. The last aspect of God's love is this. Jesus' response is a display of God's righteous love. Jesus' response is a display of God's righteous love. Verse 21, the last verse in our passage, says this. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. We see when we take into the totality of Scripture that Jesus would die as a sacrifice for our sins. Whether it was Judas that betrayed him or somebody else, it had been planned long ago by God that he would be the substitute. It was spoken of by the prophets. We see it in Isaiah 53, verse 5. 
Uh, Isaiah 53 verse 5 says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So we see this predicted, we see this prophesied all throughout scripture, and all of this is leading to the moment where Jesus fulfills that. But even though these things and this evil was predicted, this does not mean that Judas did not have a choice in the matter. Especially as we look at this passage, I mean, it looks very clear that Jesus gives Judas chance after chance to do the right thing right up until the very end. But Judas still ultimately chooses to reject Jesus. And, Jude, and Jesus announces this woe upon him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. What a tragic thing for Jesus to say about a person. He would have been better off if he had not been born. And that's a hard truth. That's a very sobering reality to set in. But that truth is the case for every person who rejects Jesus Christ. It would be better if they had not been born. Because God made each and every one of us. God has wonderful plans for each and every one of our lives. But each one of us has sinned against God. And thus we deserve to, to serve the penalty that we get for that sin, which all over scripture is described as eternal death in hell, a place that none of us want to go. And it's for all eternity. But what's also all over the scriptures is that Jesus died on the cross in order to take that penalty from us, to pay that penalty for us in our place. He paid a debt he did not owe, because we owed a debt we could not pay. And so when we look at this moment, and we think about what Jesus is doing, when Jesus says in this moment during the Passover meal, woe to that man, he's saying sin is serious. Sin is going to be punished. God has to bring about proper justice, and God has righteous wrath against all disobedience and sin. But even still, he is sent, he's giving his hand out. The punishment will either fall on Jesus' shoulders in victory or the punishment will fall on yours in utter agony. And so Jesus' warning in this moment, woe to that man, it's a caution sign. It's a caution sign for Judas, for Judas and for all sinners who turn, to turn back to Jesus so that they will not face the penalty that's due for their sin. Jesus' response in this moment is a display of God's righteous love. The primary truth that we look at today in this passage, the first one, Judas' betrayal is a display of man's heart. The second being Jesus' response is a display of God's love. So what do we do with this? The reality is as we inch closer to the crucifixion, it's just going to keep getting heavier and heavier. The weight of the story is going to continue to compound upon one another because what's going to happen is we're going to see more of man's wickedness and we're going to see the increasing levels of injustice as Jesus gets unfairly arrested and tried and eventually crucified. 
what we talked about today, betrayal and, and, and scheming for murder and, and eternal punishment for sin, like these topics are heavy. I'm aware of that. So what I was trying to do as I was thinking of ways for our church to respond to this and what kind of truths we can pull out from this text, I want to leave you with two takeaways that I think will be beneficial for us as a church. Takeaway number one, lean upon Jesus who understands betrayal. Lean upon Jesus who understands betrayal. Guys, betrayal stinks. I mean, we see in this passage just how ugly it can look from two verses, but I'm aware of the fact that many of us in this room have experienced betrayal very personally, whether past, present, or future, whether it was you being betrayed or you betraying somebody else. It could be all sorts of things. It could be as hurtful as infidelity. It could be cheating from a wife or a husband. It could be an unexpected divorce. It could be abuse from a loved one that you trusted. It can be slandering or backstabbing or jealousy in a friendship. And no matter the situation, big or small, it always hurts. Even just thinking about the term betrayal, as I was going through this, I, I, uh, I started dating Sarah earlier this year. Um, uh, shout out. Shout out. <laughs> um, but even the thought of us betraying one another or being disloyal to one another makes my stomach sick, and we're not even married yet. Um, and so, so, so I, I cannot even fathom or imagine the, the type of pain that people have experienced, are experiencing, may one day experience in that relationship or friendship or anything. I mean, betrayal just hurts. But I want to encourage you with this. You're sitting in this room and you have experienced betrayal, you've betrayed somebody. No matter what you are dealing with, I want you to know the reality that Jesus understands. Jesus can relate. And what, what a reality that is. There are people out here worshiping a God that they have, have no relationship with, that does not understand what they're going through. They're worshiping idols. They, they worship a God that is far and distant away and is just letting them figure things out on their own. No, we have a God that knows us and knows what it's like to go through what we go through. Scripture tells us that we have a friend in high places that we can go to. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 says this, For we do not have a high priest, talking about Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Not only does Jesus offer forgiveness for our betrayal of him, but he offers us his strength when we've been betrayed by the world. Takeaway number one, lean upon Jesus who understands betrayal. And the second takeaway was this. Trust in Jesus who is working all things together for good. 
trust in Jesus who is working all things together for good. You might be in your situation right now thinking, oh no, I have done way too much. There's no way that God can redeem that. Or you might be thinking on the other side, Jesus, this hurts way too much right now. What could you possibly do with this? And I want to encourage you with Romans 8, 28, that says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Just like Jesus took the evil plans of Judas and the scribes and he used it for good to accomplish his work of salvation, Jesus can take any situation, any sin, any struggle, any evil, and he can utilize it for our good and for his glory. And he promises in his word that all of this brokenness that we feel, the brokenness that we contribute to, the brokenness that comes upon us suddenly, Jesus promises in his word that all of this is culminating in a very, very good ending for those who love him. Believer in the room, be encouraged by the simple reminder that Jesus loves you so much. And he is bringing all of humanity towards a final rest where we will be fully redeemed and totally free from the aching of sin. Cling to that truth. In the moment where it hurts too much, cling to that reality. In the moment where you feel like you can't be forgiven for what you did, cling to that reality. Jesus loves you, and Jesus is fixing it all in the end. Non-believer in the room, I plead with you, join us in that rest. Turn to the Jesus who can take your sin and use it for good. The difference between Judas' betrayal of Jesus and the betrayal that was going to happen on behalf of the disciples immediately following this is that they repented. They pleaded for forgiveness. Jesus restored them back to himself, and then he uses them to accomplish his good deeds all throughout the world. And the same can be true of you. You turn to him, and you repent, and you fall on your knees like the woman with the ointment did. We're about to sing a song that I pray that one day every single person in this room can sing with full confidence and that the lyrics will be absolutely true of their life. And the lyrics go like this. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. God, we thank you for the sweet gift that we have in Jesus, Lord. We recognize that in this moment, we see ourselves in this passage 
being at the core of our heart just as evil and wicked and sinful as Judas and the priests and everyone involved, God. But we see just how gracious you are. We see how, we use, how you use even man's evil intentions to accomplish your good, God. And so I just pray, Lord, help us to just surrender everything at your feet, God. Lord, we, you are a safe place. Lord, we can bring anything, our hurts, our burdens, our struggles. We can bring everything to you, Lord, and you promise to forgive us and to invite us in, God. And you are bringing us to a place that is unfathomably good. Lord, and so I just pray, God, humble us. Help us to worship you, God. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.